So Jesus loves the little children, explaining red, yellow, black, and white. And of course, this is a hot topic uh, today because, you know, we have people wanting to make this whole issue a political football, as they say. So how did this whole idea of, of human races get going to begin with, this, this concept of races? Well, I think we can trace it back to these three characters back in the 1800s. Uh, Ernst Teckel had his version of, of human evolution, and, and he proposed this idea of races. Charles Darwin had his idea uh, of human evolution and evolution in general, and he also proposed this idea of human races. And actually, Charles Darwin's idea kind of, kind of won the day, as it were, back then. And Thomas Huxley was known as Darwin's bulldog, and so he was like Darwin's PR, uh, PR agent, as they say, and he promoted Darwin's theory of evolution and human races uh, around the world as best he could. So I think we can trace it back to then. And in fact, most people, when they think of Charles Darwin's original book, they, they just think of the title, The Origin of Species, but actually the title was very long. It went on, by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. And really this is where this concept of racism as we know it today, that term being thrown around, really got going was thanks to Charles Darwin and the theory of evolution. Evolutionists try and deny this and because they try and put a, like to put a nice face on the theory of evolution in Charles Darwin, but that's complete nonsense. Even this famous evolutionist, Stephen Jay Gould, who is probably one of the most famous modern evolutionists of this recent era, <laughs> recognized this, and this is a comment that he made. Biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1850, that was the time of Darwin, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. So where did this whole concept of human races, you know, originating from get going anyways? Well, I think we can attribute it to this idea of, of this theory called out of Africa, where a variety of evolutionists and secular scientists claim that modern, anatomically modern humans, as they call them, didn't migrate out of Africa until about 120,000 to 240,000 years ago. Of course, evolutionists fight among themselves and According to, to a certain evolutionist's pet theory on the out-of-Africa hypothesis, that date may, may vary a little bit. But anyways, it's called the out-of-Africa hypothesis, where humans evolved in Africa, and then from there they spread out all over the world. But the scientific data completely contradicts this nonsense, and... One of the, the, the most important aspects of this data is known as paleontology, or these locations of what are called Homo erectus fossils. Homo erectus is just a variant of humans, and we'll talk about that a little bit later in my talk. But where are we finding Homo erectus fossils? Well, they found some in Asia that they claim were 800,000 years old. Well, if humans didn't migrate out of Africa until 120,000 years ago, what are they doing in China 800,000 years ago? But it gets even worse. 
because they found in, in southeastern Asian islands out in the middle of the ocean down there by Australia, they found Homo erectus fossils that were almost two million years old. Now, I don't accept these millions of year dates, but as you can see, this data completely contradicts this idea that humans didn't migrate out of Africa until 120,000 years ago. In fact, these islands near Australia, they would have had to have built boats and sailed the boats to get there. Hardly primitive, um, I would say. In fact, even evolutionists have recognized this conundrum with the data conflicting with the out-of-Africa theory. This guy is a, a famous science journalist, Bruce R. Fenton, and he actually published this book just a few years ago, The Forgotten Exodus, and he calls it the into-Africa theory of human evolution. Now, he's not even a creation scientist, but he just basically said, look, the data doesn't support this nonsense. So why do evolutionists seem bound and determined to claim that humans evolved in Africa? Well, they, because they think we evolved from apes. Specifically, they think chimpanzees are our closest ancestor. So where do you find chimps? Well, basically, you can see that the places in Africa that I have highlighted in orange, that's where chimpanzees live. So evolutionists claim, well, we must have come from Africa then if that's where all the chimps are. But we're having a lot of problems with this whole issue of humans evolving from chimps because evolutionists once claimed that humans and chimpanzees were 99% identical in their DNA. How many of you have heard that at some point? Maybe on the Discovery Channel or wherever. Well, that now has been totally debunked. Um, this is a study that I did in 2018 where I downloaded uh, tons of data from the public database's chimpanzee DNA sequence. I compared it to the human genome and I found that the average similarity was only 84%, and that was just from the DNA sequences I could get to match up. That didn't include the other stuff that didn't even match. 84%. Well, what's really cool is that that exact same year I published that paper, that was 2018, this evolutionist in England at the, at the uh, University of London, Queen Mary, took the exact same data that I was working with, only he used a different algorithm, and he came up with the exact same numbers. And this is a quote from his, his blog that he put up after he did his analysis. He said the percentage of nucleotides, or DNA letters, in the human genome that had one-to-one -one exact matches in the chimpanzee genome was 84%. So, so much for humans evolving from a chimp. So what does the Bible say? Because that's really what really matches up with good science anyways, because God is holy and perfect and everything he told us is accurate and true. So when we go back to Genesis 127, the Bible says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them on the sixth day of creation. In other words, we didn't evolve from apes. God didn't evolve us from apes. He created us in his image. In fact, we're the only part of creation created in God's image. And what's really interesting is that science is now fully supporting this Genesis account of origins. 
Well, let's talk some more uh, about DNA and let's talk about mitochondrial DNA. But first, we need to look at a scripture in Genesis 3.20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Well, what is it that's unique about women and what they pass on to their children? Well, if you remember and hearken yourselves back to high school cell biology or maybe college biology, you'll remember that there's this little energy factory in your cell called the mitochondria. And that's how you're able to metabolize sugars and to basically fuel your body and, and stay alive. Well, within this little mitochondrial energy factory, it has its own circular piece of DNA that's 15,000 bases or, or 15,000 DNA letters long. And you actually inherit that in the egg, egg cell, or from your mother. So you actually inherit your mitochondrial DNA from your mother. They call that maternal inheritance. What's really interesting is that there's a, uh, a creation scientist. He got his Ph.D. from Harvard, uh, and he now works in, at Answers in Genesis in Kentucky. He actually used to work for ICR, and he, he did much of this work when he was working with us. But anyways, he said, what would evolutionists, the, what, what would be the amount of variation evolutionists might predict if that mitochondrial genome was, say, 50,000 years old? Now, he was being generous because... Evolutionists think that humans migrated out of Africa 120,000 years ago, but he said 50,000 years, and that's the amount of variation he would expect in that mitochondrial genome, which is about 50 DNA letters difference. Well, according to the scriptures, we know that if you look at the genealogies and the chronologies in the Bible, which are extremely detailed, it indicates a 6,000-year age back to creation. But let's say just say 10,000 years just to, uh, just to be safe there. So he said, what would we expect the amount of variation in the mitochondrial genome if it was about 10,000 years old? And so those are the two expectations he put out there. And then he actually figured out what the actual DNA differences were. And they were less than 10,000 years at about 6,000 years, which matched perfectly um, with when... God created mankind on the earth 6,000 years ago. Well, lest you think that we're just a bunch of crazy creationists coming up with these numbers, this was a paper that was published in 1997 uh, by secular scientists in the journal Nature Genetics, which is a highly prestigious journal. And they actually did the same kind of analysis. And this is what they said in their paper. Using our empirical rate, to, cal to calibrate the mitochondrial DNA molecular clock, and that's what we call, call these, these uh, changes in the sequence, would result in an age of the mitochondrial DNA, MRCA means most recent common ancestor or the first human woman, of only about 6,500 years ago. This is secular scientists that came up with this. The exact same numbers. And so... Humans can basically be no more than 6,000 years old, which matches perfectly with the genealogies and chronologies that we have in the Bible. Well, let's move on and talk about the DNA in the nucleus, known as your genome. So humans 
have 46 chromosomes. You have you get one set uh, from your mother and one set from your father. And this is called a karyotype. So when when cells are going through mitosis and they're dividing, the chromosomes get all scrunched up and you can take nice pretty pictures of them like this. This is actually a male because it has a Y chromosome in it. So, so much for gender identity there, right? <laughs> if you have a Y chromosome, you are definitely a male. <clears throat> but that's not what the DNA looks like in a regular living cell. It actually looks like that. Isn't that amazing? How God cre could create a system like that in a cell without the DNA getting all twisted and tangled up and, and be, being fully functional. So each chromosome is coded in a different color there. Now that's a whole different talk in and of itself. But this guy here, his name's John Sanford. He was a professor at Cornell University. He was an evolutionist much, much of his life, much of his uh, scientific career. And then he got challenged with the data for creation science and became a Christian and became a creationist. And then he began studying the genome. And he came up with this concept called genetic entropy. And so he actually published a book on that. We actually carry that, that book at ICR. But his whole premise was the human genome is not evolving, it's devolving. So in other words, our DNA is not getting better and better over time. We're actually accumulating mutations and it's devolving. And what's really interesting is that John Sanford did all these computer models and all these systems using theoretical uh, genetics to show that the human genome uh, was actually devolving. But what's really interesting is that after he had done much of his research, a couple of uh, secular papers came out in very prestigious journals. One was in the journal Science. The other was in the journal Nature. And they actually looked at thousands of human genomes from all over North America, from all over Europe. And they specifically looked at those areas of the genome that code for proteins. They called it the exomes. And they looked at the variation in those regions that code for proteins because those are very important. Because they found, first of all, that over 80% of those variants in those regions of, of genes in the genome were associated with cancer, uh, diabetes, heart disease, all these things like that. So these, these mutations were not doing anything helpful. <laughs> they were actually associated with human disease. And so when they used empirical models to map out uh, those regions of the genome based and, and, and develop molecular clocks based on what we call an empirical approach. In other words, they looked at human populations all over the globe, how fast they reproduced, how fast they grew, and they actually used this empirical data along with this genetic data to develop timescales, and they figured out that based on that rare variation that, that caused you know, human disease and so forth in genes, that the human genome could be no more than about 5,000 to 6,000 years old. I about fell out of my chair when I read this, this secular paper, <laughs> actually two different secular papers proving this. So not only do we have the mitochondrial DNA that you inherit from your mother uh, showing a 6,000 year old 
existence of humans on this earth, but we also have it now from the nuclear genome or from the, the chromosomes in your nucleus. And you know, a lot of this makes perfect sense when we look at the Bible as well. So let's look at the lifespans of Noah and his descendants after the flood. You remember that before the flood, people were living 800, 900 years. But then when the flood hit, obviously the, the environment of the earth completely changed. Uh, who knows what was going on in, in human genetics. But look at the lifespans of people just start dropping. And now we get to the point where people are only living on average about 70 to 80 years. But you can see this perfect curve declining after the flood. So in other words, the human genome is not evolving, it's devolving. And the Bible completely matches up with this data when you look at these lifespans. Well, let's talk a little bit about people groups. Well, first of all, I don't even like the word races because it's it's a bogus term. There is only really one race. There's the human race. So so I like to use this term people groups because we have all these people groups around the world that have all, you know, their distinctive uh, features and 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 uh, cultures and all these things. So let's talk about people groups and where they all came from. Well, what does the Bible say? You remember the Apostle Paul, when he was preaching to the pagan Greeks, he had to basically start at square one with these people and tell them, first of all, that God was the creator. <laughs> but he also had to make a statement about humans. And he said this in Acts 17:26. And he, God, has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth from one blood. Well, what does that mean? Well, think about it. If you were going to go buy some fancy breed of dog or, or cat or whatever, you would often see this term being used. Pedigreed animals are said to have bloodlines, right? Genetically related relatives like aunts, uncles, and cousins that are close, closely uh, related to you, we call those blood relatives. All humans then being of one blood equals one line of genetic descent, just as the Bible says. So let's look at the history of the world in light of the scriptures and major events um, that happened in the Bible that really affect our genetics. So first of all, we have a single uh, pair of humans at the beginning of creation 6,000 years ago, Adam and Eve. But then we have this major global event called the global flood, which basically killed everyone all over the earth except for Noah, his wife, and his three sons and their wives. And so... The entire earth then is, is being repopulated from three breeding couples, Noah's sons and their wives, and we call that a genetic bottleneck. So in other words, who knows how many people were living before the flood, maybe billions like, like there are today, but yet we, we have to go, and go down into this bottleneck of, of three breeding couples and repopulate the earth. So hopefully that makes sense, but that had a huge effect on human genetics. Another very important event that we have that helps explain all the people groups around the world is the Tower of Babel, which was roughly about 300 years after the flood. 
So if you remember the story about the Tower of Babel, that the humans basically were told to to go out into the earth and to repopulate it, just like they were given that dominion mandate after creation, but they rebelled. They wanted to stay in one place and rebuild their their uh, their pre-flood pagan empire. And God came down and confused their languages, forcing them to spread out over the earth. And in fact, what's really interesting... Um, is that the Bible also gives us a, a table of nations in the book of Genesis, and we now know that based on uh, linguistics and genetics, there's basically about 70 main people groups around the world, which corresponds to this, this table of nations given in Genesis. And then we're here we are at the present time in 2022 uh, with about 8 billion people on the earth. So here's a scripture in Genesis 9, 18 and 19 that describes what happened after the flood. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. And these are the three sons of Noah. And this is key right here. And of them was the whole earth overspread. So there's a genetic bottleneck that we're talking about the repopulation of the earth. Again, in Genesis chapter 10. We have the scripture on the table of nations. These are the families or the people groups of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. And once again, you know, modern genetics and modern linguistics confirms this this table of nations um, from Genesis. Well, you remember how we were able to look at DNA and how that was to show that that humans were created 6,000 years ago, according to the timeline of the Bible. Well, what's really interesting is that when we look at genetics, we also see a perfect timeline back to the global flood. In fact, this same guy, uh, this this Harvard PhD that, that did the mitochondrial DNA work also, looked at mitochondrial DNA from the perspective, um, of, of how that would match up with the global flood. And so he took thousands of mitochondrial DNA sequences taken from women all over the earth, or from people all over the earth. He put them into a computer program that lined them all up and then built a tree based on the similarity of the sequences. And what do you see there? You see three different branches on that tree. That's called an unrooted tree. What do you think those correspond to? the three wives of Noah's sons. And so, once again, the genetic data is completely confirming what the Bible says about the history of the population of the earth. And here it says in Genesis 11, 1 through 9, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over all the face of the earth. So what do you think would happen if you had a a large group of people after the flood and God comes down and confuses the languages? Who are you going to marry and go on and start a family with? (laughs) Someone you can communicate with and understand, (laughs) right? So basically, God is, is essentially creating all these different people groups at the Tower of Babel. So in other words, only certain people could could communicate with others, and they go off and to the various parts of the earth and, and start all these different people groups that we see today. 
So in other words, human genetic diversity um, that we see today is explained by the Tower of Babel, and it's there in Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Oh, I've got a funny, a funny story before we move on. I was actually, my wife and I were actually visiting a, a, a church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area on a Sunday night, you know, just to kind of get out and uh, visit some other churches and things. And we had some friends that went to church at this one particular place. And after the service, I met this one guy, and he was a graduate student um, at a famous uh, Dallas seminary. Well, <laughs> I won't mention the name, but anyways. And he was majoring in Old Testament, and he was actually Asian. Uh, I think he was from Taiwan. And when he, when I told him I was a geneticist, he was like really confused, and he asked me about all the people groups and where they came from because this had been a political hot topic, and, and he was really under all this consternation wondering about all this. And then I explained to him the Tower of Babel and genetics and all of that. And this big, you know, sensation of relief came across him. And, and it all made sense. But how can you major in Old Testament and not, you know, understand something like that? So I think we really need to get some good creation science back in our, in our nation's seminaries and Bible colleges. So anyways, this is a map, uh, this is a present map of global human genetic diversity. So where do you see most of the diversity, genetic diversity in the world right now? The highest levels would be the green and the dark green. Well, you see them in Africa, and then you see them in Central Asia there around India. Well, let's think what would happen after the flood. So I don't know if you've ever had a scientist that worked for us. His name is Jake Hebert. He's a climate physicist, and he talks about the ice age. Has he been here? Okay. So if you were here for Jake, Dr. Hebert's talk, you would you would know that after the flood created the perfect conditions for an ice age, which lasted about 300 years, 400 years or so after the flood, maybe a couple, 200 to 400 so the upper regions of the earth would be extremely inhospitable. So I've got that kind of lined out with that, that blue there. <clears throat> well, the ark would have landed in this region of the Middle East. And, of course, that's where the Tower of Babel would, would have been as well in that general region. So where do you think people would have gone after the flood for the most part? They would have gone into Africa and into Middle Asia, which is actually where we see the greatest amount of human DNA diversity today. And then from there, they obviously would have spread out over all the earth. So what about the traits that that make all of us different? Let's talk about that for a little bit. So what about this whole idea of one gene, one trait? How many of you have heard of that? Oh, you've got the gene for blue eyes or whatever, you know. So, anyways, that all got going by this guy uh, named Gregor Mendel, even before the era of modern genetics. But he proposed that traits were essentially uh, controlled by by a single thing. And so he got this idea by by messing around with pea plants. And one thing that you can do with pea plants is you can take a true breeding line of pea plants that have purple flowers, cross them with a line uh, that breeds true for white flowers, and then in that generation after that you'll get all purple flowers because the purple 
color is what's called a dominant trait. Some of you may have had this uh, basic stuff, say, in, in high school or, or college biology. And then you take the seeds from that generation and plant them out, and you'll get what's called segregation. So you'll get three purple flowers to one white flower in your population. Well, that seemed to indicate that what we were looking at was very simple traits controlled by single genes. But it turns out that is not the case. And this is a classic case of what we once thought where a single gene controlled a single trait. How many of you remember in biology class where your teacher may have said, okay, look around the room and see who has attached and who has dangling earlobes? Now, I know a lot of you are probably wanting to touch your ears right now and see. <clears throat> Go ahead, get it over with. So anyways, and so we were told that the attached uh, earlobe trait, which is what I've got, was, was recessive and that the dangling earlobe was dominant and it was controlled by a single gene and all that. Well, it turns out that that's really not the case. They, believe it or not, they actually published a study on this in 2017 where they looked at the DNA of human genomes from all over the world and correlated that data with these earlobe traits. And this is what they found out. Moreover, a meta-analysis across all four cohorts or groups of people revealed a total of 49 significant loci or areas around the human genome that controlled your earlobe, whether it was attached or unattached. 49 major points, and that, that didn't include all the minor ones. So, so much for one gene, one trait. What about this, this concept that we call the Asian eye? So what is the Asian eye? It's basically defined by this thing called an epicanthic fold, or in other words, it's a skin fold of the upper eyelid that covers the inner corner of the eye. Well, the most common place where we see this, obviously, is across Asia. We, we see the, um, the epicanthic fold. But as it turns out, there's people groups in Africa that have an epicanthic fold as well, or the so-called Asian eye. On top of that, it turns out there's an entire group of people called the Swedish Sami, which are, which are basically in, in upper northern Europe and the upper parts of Finland, Sweden, uh, Russia. I think there's one other country there that have an epicanthic fold or the so-called Asian eye. And these people are blonde-haired, blue eyes <laughs> with the... So in other words, you know, these traits are just dispersed all over the world. And that's actually a fairly famous uh, alpine skier picture of him there. But what about skin color? This variation in skin color, which is based upon the amount of melanin, which is a pigment in your skin cells that makes your skin either darker or lighter. Believe it or not, this picture was taken from a study that was done in Africa. And so... Africa has the greatest amount uh, of genetic diversity on Earth, and basically they did a study in Africa, and they actually put this picture in their research paper showing uh, the spectrum of people that they looked at across Africa. They actually analyzed the DNA from 1,500 different people, and they also correlated it with the, the melanin index or the amount of melanin in their skin, 
And they found out that six different genes together accounted for only 30% of the observed skin color variation. Outside of that, there was hundreds of genes. In other words, it was a very complex trait. So we can begin to see how things are, are sorting out after the Tower of Babel. But because of this complexity behind these traits, we see things like this uh, cropping up. This is a Nigerian couple in, in, the, um, in the United Kingdom that had a baby in 2010 that was blonde-haired, blue-eyed, because in their genetic background, they had the traits uh, for that. Well, that's kind of extreme. This is what I'm kind of imagining probably happened at the Tower of Babel. So this is a couple. This lady is a white uh, European descent. This guy is, is half Jamaican. Um, he probably has some, some uh, African ancestry in his background. And you can see their children, you know, exhibit just a broad spectrum of skin colors and, and hair types. But these are two fraternal twins that they had. One had very dark skin. And the other had very light skin and blonde hair and blue eyes. And so this is what I imagine happened at the Tower of Babel. People are getting their languages confused and they're forming all these different people groups. But here we see it in a single family. So I don't think it's hard to imagine what happens. So the evolutionary story, though, for skin color is, is in my opinion, completely bogus. And I'll explain why that is. Evolutionists claim that lighter-skinned people with less melanin would be selected against in the tropics, but favored at higher latitudes. <laughs> How many of you have heard that? Well, we have some problems with that. For one, the Inuits, they have, they have highly pigmented dark skin and they live near the North Pole. In fact, this, this scientist... Um, this science writer basically published this article. I think it's just funny. Inuits live in very cold climates. Why do they have dark skin? Question mark. Because <laughs> Darwin was wrong. Because they wanted to live there. That's why. <laughs> the, the environment wasn't magically favoring them. And in fact, when we look at, at a melanoma by age. So melanoma is skin cancer. And it's typically related to people that spend a lot of time in the sun. So when do we see people getting skin cancer by age? Well, here it is, between zero and, and, and the age of 39, hardly anyone is getting skin cancer. So how is the environment magically selecting against you during your reproductive years? It's just, it's complete nonsense. Most people don't uh, get skin cancer till they're done having children up in their 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe even 80s. And so the evolutionary story for that is, is absolute nonsense. So let's talk something about primitive traits. What about the Neanderthals and so-called primitive traits? Well, the fact of the matter is you wouldn't even know a Neanderthal unless he came up to you with a spear and a name tag on the street because he'd look totally human. That, but we see papers like this popping up all the time now that they're sequencing Neanderthal DNA. And humans bred with this mysterious species more than once. New, store, new study shows. Wow, imagine that. Humans breeding with humans. Your Neanderthal DNA might actually be doing you some good. Neanderthals actually had bigger brains than modern humans, so there are some scientists that are claiming they're going to clone Neanderthal brain genes and put them in modern humans, genetically engineer us to have bigger brains and be smarter. 
Ancient humans may have been mothers to some Neanderthals earlier than we thought, and these things just keep popping up incessantly in the news because it's really cool and trendy now to sequence archaic human DNA. So there's a Neanderthal skull. Uh, the major difference between modern humans is they, they had kind of a sloping forehead and a large uh, brow ridge. The Homo erectus skulls were almost identical to Neanderthal skulls. They were just smaller. Uh, they weren't as big. So Neanderthal and Homo erectus, essentially their defining features are this, this large brow ridge, the, the slope type of a sloping forehead. Well, the problem is we still see this today. And so this guy is sitting in a dental chair uh, in South Africa, and the dentist basically is a creationist, and he loves taking pictures of, <laughs> of his patients. I don't know if the guy knew he was getting his picture taken or not. But anyways, look at the brow ridge on that guy, and he is alive and well. I took a sampling here. Um, oops. I took a sampling here of a bunch of rugby players from Eastern Europe. Look at their brow ridges. They're humongous, and then, of course, sloping foreheads. What's interesting is that Eastern Europe is, is where most of the Neanderthal uh, skeletons have been found, although they have been found in other places, too. But it's a common trait. In fact, you can go to the mall this afternoon after you have lunch in the, in the buffet and look at people's foreheads, right? <laughs> For something to do. Anyways... Uh, this guy is famous. He's Nikolai Valyev. He was a famous uh, boxer. I think he only lost one match his entire boxing career. Now he's a member of the Russian parliament. And look at that forehead and brow ridge. And so, so much for archaic traits because they're still with us today. But what about this thing called a sagittal crest? And so that's this little crest down the, the center of, of, a of your head that some people uh, have this. And they used to claim that was a primitive trait. But this guy up here in the suit and tie um, is a famous neurosurgeon, and uh, he has a sagittal crest, and he's a pretty smart guy. And, of course, the guy on the right uh, has a sagittal crest. And, I mean, he used to pilot a star cruiser across the, the galaxy, so, I mean, he must be pretty smart, too. Fact is, there's just a lot of variation among humans. And here's two professional tennis players um, over a foot difference in height. In fact, the guy on the left actually is from Dallas. <laughs> but anyways, that match went to uh, went to several tie breaks and it's fairly evenly matched. But just a lot of variation uh, between humans, not evolution. But you know, there is one thing that all humans have in common, despite all the variation we see among humans all over the globe, amongst all these people groups, and that's called sin. And so Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sin. 1 Corinthians 15.22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But we know the solution to that is, is basically repenting and putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Son of God who died for our sins. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so that's the real problem with humans is sin. It's not all the differences we have with one another. It's our heart problem. <laughs> And you know what's really cool is that the Tower of Babel 
connects with the book of Revelations. And I never really thought about that before until I put this entire talk together. Think about it. In Revelation 7, 9, it says, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Revelation 7, 9. So what mankind meant for evil at the Tower of Babel in rebelling against God, God meant for good because he knew that after he confused their languages and they went across the the earth, the gospel would go global to the Gentiles all over the earth and that this would be the end result. God's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation standing around the throne worshiping the Lord Jesus. So isn't that cool? I mean, I... All the years I studied creation science, you know, it never hit me till I, till I put this talk together and I just went, wow, that's, that's just awesome. So anyways, I have some books, uh, at, at ICR you can get. You just go to the website icr.org if you're interested. I've got one on chimps and humans where I literally tackle every single issue of so-called human chimp, uh, evolution known to man. And in that book and debunk it. And then I've got another book on the design and complexity of the cell. And that's actually a new edition of both these books. They're very new. That's a new edition of design and complexity of the cell. I redid a previous 2012 version of that. We have this book called Creation Basics and Beyond where we talk about geology and, and paleontology and the global flood and genetics and biology and, and theology and everything related to creation science. And that's really good. And we just updated that recently. Um, as well. Then we have our magazine, Acts and Facts. Some of you probably already get this, but uh, you can sign up for this uh, for free at our website and get that. used to be once a month. Now we're going to every two months. We're going to see how that works. Um, but anyways, it's a beautiful, glossy magazine. It's got tons of articles on, on creation science from every angle you can think of, and it's a great resource, and it's, it's absolutely free. So anyways, that's my talk, and hopefully we'll have time to get to the, the buffet before the, <laughs> the crowds. I don't know. <laughs> Do you run? <laughs>